Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. We're here to help you explore and understand the unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. We look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues and gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on agriculture, farming, doing it sustainably for health of the environment and for ourselves. Now, historical civilizations and modern life as we know it would not have been possible without agriculture. It was through the cultivation of nutritional food that the structure of early societies could actually diversify and focus on the various other tasks that were required. Without the need to move to better hunting grounds or spend time on dangerous quests for seasonal sources of food, early humans were able to settle and use their energies toward manufacturing more sophisticated tools and toward building permanent dwellings. And as time passed, agriculture became the most dominant land use on the planet, feeding our booming population and transforming natural habitats of many of the species. And now, since the start of the Green Revolution, the productivity of the global agricultural system has more than doubled, improving food security for our growing population and meeting the dietary demands of an ever-increasingly wealthy world. And this astounding productivity has also imposed some environmental costs. And whether the outcome of this change delivers negative or positive consequences depends largely on our approach. And although it may sound counterintuitive, sustainable management of our lands can prevent many of the problems we're currently facing. I'm here today to help us unpack some of this from the environmental perspective is Nigel Sizer with the Rainforest Alliance. The Rainforest Alliance is an international nonprofit organization that's working at the intersection of business, agriculture, and forest in order to make responsible business the new normal. Issues they're tackling are forests, food and farming, climate, and human rights. Their approach is to bring diverse allies together and implement proven and scalable solutions on the ground, while at the same time testing innovative ways to drive change. Nigel served for two years as president of the Rainforest Alliance until January 2018, and he's now their chief program officer based in New York City. Nigel was the former global director of the forest program at the World Resources Institute, where he launched path-breaking partnerships, including the award-winning Global Forest Watch, and the Global Restoration Initiative. Nigel also served as Vice President for Asia Pacific with RARE, where he developed grassroots efforts 
to link impoverished communities in Indonesia to global carbon markets, and he pioneered community-based fisheries and served as lead advisor on climate change and energy to U.S. President Bill Clinton. Welcome, Nigel. We're so glad that you could join us today. Thank you, Bernice. Great to be here. Nigel, a couple of years ago, you were able to engineer the merging of the Dutch nonprofit UTZ. And at the time, the Rainforest Alliance had been around for almost 30 years. So can you tell us a little about why and how did that merger come about? And did that merger change or enhance the Rainforest Alliance mission and direction and your work? It's a great question. In the world of business, we're all very accustomed to hearing about mergers and acquisitions as companies buy and sell each other and come together, join forces in various ways. Uh, we see it much less in the world of environmental and social nonprofits. It's actually quite common in the educational nonprofits and health nonprofits, where you often have a lot of duplication overlap. In a town, you might have two groups working on women's health, for example, and they'll join up and become one. Uh, so we decided, uh, the leadership of Rainforest Alliance and the leadership of Utz in the Netherlands, that it would make very good sense for us to just become one organization. A lot of what we were doing was overlapping. We were kind of competing with each other in some ways, which is, makes no sense really for nonprofits because we basically have the same mission uh, or very similar missions. Uh, we looked at the numbers, we did lots of analysis, and we decided that if we could come together and become one organization, we would be much stronger as a result. We would have more scale, more capacity, uh, and so on. And so we did that. It took about 12 months to organize. It's, uh, there's lots of legal stuff involved. And we're now a $70 million global nonprofit. And I think we're very happy that we did that. Uh, and particularly now, given the global pandemic, because we're more resilient as a result of that. And many nonprofits are really struggling to survive during this time. So we're, we're strong and resilient partly because of this merger and uh, we're able to do much more work as a result and achieve our mission more effectively. One of your areas of expertise is climate smart agriculture. And of course, ag is our focus for today's show. So can you tell us more about the Rainforest Alliance work with agriculture and farming? And will you explain for our listeners the difference between agriculture and farming, as I know most people use them synonymously? Yeah, so why, why is an organization called Rainforest Alliance working on farming? Well, the answer is very simple, the greatest threat to tropical rainforests is expanding human agriculture, whether it's soy and beef in the Brazilian Amazon, uh, palm oil in Indonesia, um, other crops across Africa. Cocoa is a big driver of deforestation, of loss of tropical rainforests in West Africa. Most of the world's cocoa comes from Ghana and Ivory Coast, for example. Uh, so if we're going to protect forests, and improve the lives of people who live in and around those forests, then we have to basically become experts in agriculture. So that's really what we're all about now. Uh, and a very big part of this for us is the what, what we call the agricultural supply chain. So we also certify the, the sustainability, the responsible production of, of farm products that are produced in these landscapes. And we're 
We're very involved in, in bananas, cocoa, coffee, tea, and quite a number of vegetable crops and so on as well. So certifying to, to buyers that these were produced in a more responsible way, that you've got less chemicals being used, less contamination of water, uh, less deforestation, restoration taking place, and so on, and that the people doing the work are well-treated. The workers are properly paid. Uh, you don't have slave labor, which is a surprisingly common problem, maybe for many of your listeners to hear about in, in many of these places and so on. So, so we're involved from the human rights side right through to the, to the protecting the forest side. But agriculture is where a lot of this comes together. So, Nigel, what would you say are the major issues and threats around agriculture? And what are the major challenges currently? Yeah, well, that's a big question. Um, so if we step way back, one way to look at that is the following. The human population is growing uh, and people want to consume more. And to some extent, a lot of people need to consume more because they're undernourished, maybe not so much in this country. Although right now we hear that one quarter of New York City is actually suffering from food insecurity, right, remarkably. Um, we're used to that story from, from other countries, but it's right here in our backyard as well. We need to produce more food, and we need to use what's being produced uh, more carefully. A lot of food is wasted as well. So as populations grow and cons consumption grows, we're looking at you know, 50 to 100% more food, more calories being needed to be produced over the next generation or so to improve human well-being. Well, where is that going to come from? It can come from increasing the productivity of existing farmland, and there is very, very important work going on with that. Um, but it also comes from expanding farmland uh, across the world, and that is happening at the expense of natural habitats, right? Loss of tropical forests. But in this country as well, and, and Europe and elsewhere, there's also the risk of that. So, um, so the key thing here is how do we grow more food in a more sustainable way, right? There's not just the area you need, it's the chemicals, the water that's used, the way the people are treated, the labor that's used, fairer compensation for the workers and so on. So there's a whole number of issues on that. Literally thousands of organizations are working to address these challenges. Indeed, and that does give us a lot to think about. We're going to go to break now, Nigel, and we'll be right back on the other side to continue this very interesting conversation. We are with Nigel Sizer with the Rainforest Alliance. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, and interactive experiences. For Earth X, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to the conversation at EarthX League. Go to earthx.org to register and to start talking. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority, or the DFW Metroplex and North Texas Communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, and sunflower shops, as well as online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Thank you, sponsors. 
welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back with Nigel Sizer with the Rainforest Alliance. And thank you again for being with us, Nigel, and for giving us that really in-depth explanation as to the integration of forest, i.e. rainforest, and agriculture, and pinpointing for us the major issues and threats around that whole dynamic. I want to talk a little bit, though, about livestock, because it looks like livestock production, which is an element of agriculture, generates up to one-third of the global greenhouse gases that lead to climate change. So how do you see this in the environments in which you work? How do you see this in general? And how can we still supply our desire for meat at the same time that we keep our environment healthy? Well, that's a really key question, Bernice. And I would say it's actually rather hard to give the world and consumers all the meat that they would like to eat and continue to have a healthy planet. Uh, so certainly in this household, we, we're not strictly vegetarian, but we eat a lot less red meat in particular than we used to. A very major study came out last year uh, from the Lancet and the Eat Foundation, a global commission report which I think was quite remarkable. For the first time, it combined an analysis looking at human health globally and diet and planetary health, the health of the planet and its ecosystems. And, it, and one of its most clear-cut conclusions was eat less red meat if you eat a lot of it. On the other hand, a few people need to eat, or quite a number of people need to eat a little bit more, right? The very undernourished people in very poor countries should, are, should be eating a little bit more. But overall, particularly in countries like the United States, red meat consumption is, is bad for health at the level at which it occurs and, and, and bad for the planet in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, pollution of water, uh, loss of habitat. Right? The major driver of destruction of the Amazon rainforest, which is really in the headlines these days, it's, it's back up to double. The major driver of that is clearing of land for beef production. Not much of that comes to the U.S. We produce most of our own here, but, but, but supplying global markets. Um, it's a very, very serious problem. So there needs to be much more attention on these livestock management and environmental issues around them. And helping people shift to, to, to a more balanced and healthier diet as well, which is good for all of us. Yes, and every study that I read that addresses climate change and its issues, eating less meat seems to always be in there as one of the solutions. But let me ask you this, Nigel, is it possible and are people in fact doing it in terms of reclaiming land that perhaps once was grazing land or once was used by livestock? Are we seeing that or is it conceivable in an efficient manner to reclaim that land back to health. Yeah, well, that's kind of ironic given where I'm sitting. I'm sitting 40 miles north of New York City in a small town called Mount Kisco uh, in the middle of a beautiful forest. This all was dairy farm. It's now restored and protected to manage the watershed for the reservoirs that supply New York City. And it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful landscape. Um, in my previous job with the World Resources Institute, we worked with governments across Africa to launch an initiative called the Africa 100 Initiative. Uh, African governments have now committed 
to restore 130 million hectares of land across Africa, which is what over over 530 million to 300 300 million plus acres of land in Africa is now committed to be restored with tree planting and natural regeneration and so on by African governments who recognize that this is key for the wider sustainability of those landscapes and the health of ecosystems and the agricultural systems that depend upon those ecosystems. If you don't do this, then you lose local rainfall patterns. You ha- The water table drops down, so you suffer much more uh, during arid periods. And that connects back to climate change and the climate smart agriculture story, because the really big impact of agriculture for farmers is on water. It's on water availability, the seasonality of rain, heavier rains, longer dry periods, and so on. That's what causes really serious problems. Anyone who's a gardener knows that the worst thing is three months without rain when you're expecting it, uh, and climate change makes that worse. So all this restoration activity helps to address some of these issues, even on a local scale. Nigel, I'd like to dig in just really briefly to something you said, and you said it hmm. it affects the rainfall patterns. Yep. Explain to our listeners how that happens, how ranching or livestock business or livestock raising is going to affect the rain patterns. So right here in the United States, we depend to some extent on a giant water pump called the Amazon rainforest. The Amazon rainforest pumps vast amounts of water into the atmosphere every day. And this has all been observed with satellites and measured and monitored and so on. goes up into the atmosphere and becomes the rainfall, not only for Brazil, but for the wider region. And and a significant portion of it ends up here in North America. As that rainforest is being cleared for beef and soy and other agricultural activities, uh, that water pump is being destroyed. Uh, And at a certain point, and we may be approaching that point in the next decade or so, scientists think, so much of the rainforest on the eastern side of the Amazon will have been cleared that the ecology, the entire Amazon basin will be affected and that entire water pumping system could start to degrade and the entire basin starts to dry out because of patterns of rainfall and wind and so on across the basin. So we are close potentially to some tipping points in some of these sort of mega ecosystems that help drive the planet's weather systems, tipping points that could disrupt agriculture and human welfare on a much, much larger scale. Thank you for that very vivid explanation, because I really don't think people connect the dots. And that's what we attempt to do on this show is connect the dots for people and help to create what we like to call climate empathy once they understand that. But in going through our ordinary days, I don't think people understand or ever think about or even ever imagine how livestock production is going to affect their rain production. Imagine we hear a lot about sustainable agriculture. Would you explain for our listeners the difference between conventional agriculture, as they know it, and sustainable agriculture, and tell us more about how sustainable agriculture benefits communities and the environment in general? Yeah, well, at the simplest level, I suppose sustainable agriculture is agriculture that can continue indefinitely, that can be sustained 
and can sustain us with the productivity of the food that it's producing. What that means in practice is things like uh, how the water is being treated in the system, uh, the amount of chemicals that are being used and where those chemicals go. A clearing of habitat, as we've discussed, affects the sustainability of the wider landscape that the farming is part of. And when we talk about sustainability at Rainforest Alliance, of course, we also mean the human side to that, so that the people who are living in those landscapes that are, that are farming or that are working on larger farms, that they are being treated properly and that that is also sustainable. And so that's what we talk about sustainable when we, when we mean sustainable agriculture. You've got habitat, biodiversity, good water management, good soil management, as well as high levels of productivity to feed the world and the people in that system being well-treated. Indeed. Now, I've heard uh, you all use the term agroforestry. Would you tell our listeners what that's about and how you promote healing of the land through it? So agroforestry, again, is a very simple idea. It's about growing trees together with, with crop plants. So it's often being developed as sort of, you imagine rows of trees with crops growing between them. Imagine trees um, which grass is growing beneath the trees and livestock are grazing on that grass during the season when there aren't leaves on the trees. This sort of is called a, an agro-silvy pastoral system is the jargon for that. Um, when you combine trees and crops in the right kind of way, you get a lot of organic matter from the trees going into the soils, which is very good for water retention, for nutrient retention, for fertilizing those soils. But basically, it's how you combine all these things together. Nigel, last question. What has been the biggest challenge brought about by COVID-19 as it relates to agricultural activities? And then how can ordinary people in their everyday lives help drive solutions? Well, a very big challenge for a lot of the farmers that we are working with is that the supply chains that they feed into, the markets that they supply, have stopped buying from them. For, for various reasons. We've seen these images here in the United States, right? On the one hand, you've got some empty grocery store shelves. And on the other hand, you've got farmers plowing crops ready to harvest back into the soil because the supply chains feeding restaurants and hotels and so on have basically collapsed. There's much more demand from consumers like us in the grocery stores as we're all exactly. stuck at home. So farmers are in some farmers are in very big trouble because of this. We've set up an emergency fund to help support them. If you go to our website, Rainforest Alliance, you can contribute to that, and we get that support out to the farmers. That indeed, Nigel, is a weird situation. But you know what? I'm actually excited about it because I see it represents an opportunity to do something different and innovative to connect those dots between people having empty shelves and others having an overabundance. Thank you so much. This has been Nigel Pfizer with the Rainforest Alliance. We thank you very much for being with us. We hope you'll be able to come back again in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Bernice. Thank you. It's my pleasure. We're going to go to break now. And after the break, we will be back on the other side with Dr. Joe Masabney, who's going to talk to us more about farming from the environmental and health perspective. Welcome 
Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back for part two of our show. And we're going to talk about farming and horticulture as it relates to agriculture and farming. Now, when done right, farmers could actually bring about many, many positive environmental impacts of agriculture that may enrich local biodiversity and boost vital ecosystem services. They do this because agriculture inspires people. Farmers have shaped and maintained the unique look of rural areas for a long, long time. Farms can create wonderful variety of landscapes, ranging from beautiful blossoming orchards to rolling hills. They also help because agriculture preserves ecosystems. Grasslands provide habitat to a great number of animals and native plants. And these areas have almost entirely been wiped out in other countries. And also agriculture provides food from limited resources. Urban agriculture on a small scale can help to localize food production reducing the overall environmental footprint of our modern food system. And these are just a very few of the good things that agriculture and farming do for the environment. And of course, the major issue around this that we hear so much about is factory farming. But most of us are not sure why this is so often vilified. And here today to help us unpack all of this is Dr. Joe Masabni, and he's with Texas A&M University here in North Texas with our Texas AgriLife. Joe Masabni has a MS in pomology and his PhD in vegetable production from Michigan State University. Joe moved to Texas A&M University in August of 2008 as the extension vegetable specialist after serving six years as the extension fruit and vegetable specialist at the University of Kentucky Research and Education Center. Joe's area of research is vegetable crop production and extension education. He develops extension programs and provides educational opportunities to improve the profitability of the vegetable industry in Texas. And the extension program addresses the continued education of extension agents as well as producers. Welcome, Joe. We're so glad you could join us today. Thank you very much, Bernice. Glad to be here. Joe, first I want you to tell us what pomology is and then tell us more about why vegetable production is so important that there's actually a PhD doctorate program of study in it, which of course you have completed. And tell us about some of the problems and challenges that you're seeing both globally and here in Texas with it. All right. Yeah, great. Uh, great question. Uh, pomology is uh, the science of growing fruits. And that's what I did my master's degree at Michigan State on the testing the effect of hormones on the apple fruit size and, and hand thinning and all that. Uh, vegetable production is a totally different field, uh, similar in the sense that it's agriculture and horticulture. Why is it important? I guess the bottom line, well, we got to eat. We can't live on hamburgers alone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, vegetables are a source of nutrients, vitamins, and essential uh, amino acids that you cannot get uh, from any other source, uh, fibers, uh, among other uh, ben benefits. You know, in some countries, the vegetable consumption is, uh, my God, more than 50% of their daily calorie intakes 
and more than 90% of the people uh, report that they eat vegetables two or three times a day. These numbers, unfortunately, are lower in the U.S., but we are getting there. There's more awareness, awareness by the public for healthy diet, for uh, healthy lifestyle, and all that. Why is a doctorate program necessary? Well, uh, we know a lot. We have answered a lot of questions, but there's still a lot of questions that we don't know yet. Um, sometimes we know the answer for one crop, but we don't know if it's going to apply for other crops. Uh, there, we, there's uh, still a lot of questions on sustainability. How can we produce crops uh, with uh, minimum inputs and be sustainable to the, and beneficial to the soil and to the environment, but at the same time be profitable to the grower? Uh, what ideal light temperature uh, water regimen can get you uh, the ideal crop, nutritious, uh, good to the environment, and profitable, uh, those, uh, three those three ideas at the same time. That's interesting. Our last guest, Nigel Sizer, with the Rainforest Alliance, was just mentioning also how the U.S. tends to eat more meat than many other societies, which has its own whole set of other issues as it relates to environmental degradation. Absolutely. And so I do have to think that vegetable production has to grow in importance now and in the future as we begin to think about moving to more of a plant-based diet simply to help combat climate change. I agree. We all like a taste of a good steak once in a while, but I also know that one acre will, is enough for one cow to live on, but that one acre can produce tons and tons of vegetables that can feed a lot more people. So it's not efficient. The system is not efficient, and we hope, but we are moving in the right direction. You can hear, you can you see more and more uh, vegetarian-based meat that you know that look like they taste like me but they're not me they're... that's what i eat and i love it and i can't tell the difference now and my favorite thing is to sneak it into one of my friends or family and then after they eat it then i tell them what it was but joe will you discuss for our listeners though about how so many things in the environment and which things specifically in the environment affect the taste, the quality, the quantity, and the nutritional value of the food that we eat every day. We can control a lot of things in the environment, but the weather is something we cannot control. Uh, uh, but the soil is the most important thing in the environment, if you want to call that, that uh, can impact to the quality of the produce and the nutritional quality of the produce. Uh, I have seen uh, tomatoes from the same field uh, not only performing differently, like half the yield, but also the taste and the uh, shape of the tomato fruit different in the same field. The only difference is that the soil different between one location and another. So that is the biggest, and, we, and that's what we keep uh, hammering to my clientele, to my students, uh, the importance of uh, keeping a healthy soil uh, and your dream, the dream of any grower is that you can farm a land for 50 years and leave it uh, like it was still a virgin land after uh, 50 years of gardening, uh, taking care of the soil and then the soil will take care of them. 
And when you say profitable, are you speaking in terms of quantity or quality of the produce or both? Both. Uh, well, the, the grower cares of the quality, quantity, <laughs> and then the quality is secondary because when it looks nice, they get a better price. Uh, when it looks bigger, on the tomato is bigger, they get a better price. So a little bit of both, yes. But generally, uh, the yield, yes. Well, what about us consumers? And we're into taste. Yes. What most goes into the crops that determine taste? Freshness. I'm convinced myself, and I try to convince others, that uh, organic or, not or, or non-organic is great, but fresh is more important. Uh, a fresh tomato that you buy from the local uh, farmer's market will taste better, will be more nutritious, more nutritious than the one that was struck in from a thousand miles away, even if, if that one was organic. Because it, uh, the minute you harvest it, it's slowly losing nutritional quality over time. So uh, at a farmer's market that was harvested the day before, you know that as close to fresh as possible. Uh, so support your local uh, uh, growers, support, support your farmer's market. Uh, and of course, they are doing their best to be organic, follow organic practices or as close to organic as possible, meaning minimal um, pesticide application, but most importantly, proper uh, soil health and sustainable practices like uh, cover crop, resting the soil uh, every other year, uh, grow a crop that you can till in to uh, and will um, improve the health of that soil for the following crop. What do you mean when you use the term cover crop? What is that? Well, a cover crop is a crop that you are not harvesting. For example, uh, in the winter, you grow something like winter rye or Austrian, uh, uh, Austrian winter pea that you grow it for the purpose of uh, incorporating in the soil, which mm -hmm. will break down and release the nutrients back to the soil. Some kind of form of medicine or composting yeah. or whatever. Compost, natural compost that you grow and you incorporate. Interesting. We're going to go to break right now, Joe, and we'll be back on the other side to continue this very interesting conversation. We are with Dr. Joe Masabni with Texas A&M University from our own Texas AgriLife here in North Texas. Thank you, Joe. We want to give a shout out to our sponsors now. That is EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, promoting environmental awareness through expo, conferences, film festival, on interactive experiences. For EarthX, Earth Day is every day. So join the movement, keep in touch, and add to their conversation at EarthX League. Go to their website, earthx.org, to register for EarthX League and begin the conversation, start talking. Our other sponsor is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority, for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found at all Whole Foods Market, Natural Grocers, Central Markets, Sunflower Shops, as well you can find it online at nadallas.com. Check them out. Thank you, sponsors. Healthy Planet Radio. And we're back with Dr. Joe Masabni with the Texas A&M University here in North Texas with our Texas 
AgriLite and their extension program. Thank you again. Welcome back for being with us, Joe. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Joe, we talked a little bit before the break about organic. And so really briefly, just let listeners know the major differences between organic and conventional produce that they get. Okay, well, to me, the defi- I follow the definition of USDA uh, for organic, which states that uh, the produce to be called organic, uh, it uh, has to be grown on a soil that uh, had no prohibited substances for the last three years uh, prior to harvest. And those prohibited substances, meaning like uh, synthetic uh, fungicides, insecticides, herbicides, things like that. The the commonly the common definition of organic by many growers is something on the sustainable side, on the following uh, uh, as uh, natural practices, uh, meaning that they are not certified. They follow the theory of organic in terms of sprays, but they are not certified. Uh, and if there's an emergency of having to spray something or lose the crop, they will. Their, their, uh, their first choice is following and using organic products, but uh, if there's an emergency and they have to spray something, uh, they, they, they will. And of course, they have to inform, and they do, they're very good at that. They do inform their clientele if they are asked at the farmer's market that, hey, I'm not certified, and I spray if there's an emergency, but uh, I follow as close to natural products and as close to natural practices as possible. Other than price misconceptions, what do you see as the most common misconceptions about organic farming? Well, the biggest one is uh, people think that organic means au naturel, spray nothing at all, uh, like a grandma used to do. And I joke and I say, grandma used to spray DDT and arsenic they had no idea that was bad for them, and it was available, and they used it. You're talking like the caveman where they, they had nothing, and uh, they grew au naturel. That is the biggest conception. And some people want to grow like that, and I tried it, and I demonstrated that you get 10 or 20% of the yield uh, potential if you spray nothing. Uh, so if you're happy with that, the homeowner is happy with that, God bless, go do it. But I know a no commercial grower who wants to be in business can afford to harvest 10%, 20% of the yield and be sustainable. And uh, actually, they hurt themselves because all that extra bugs and diseases will hurt their crop the following year. We're very fortunate here in North Texas because we are basically reamed, the Metroplex is reamed by working farms. Every year for the last six years at Natural Awakenings, we've been publishing a print pull-out farmer's market guide where we actually give information and addresses and things about the working farms as well as a lot of the yes. farmer's market. Yes. And so I believe, though, that you work with commercial growers, home growers, gardeners. And so in your experience working with growers, do you see the industry growing or contracting and why, and what are the major threats to the industry for growers? Well, one of the major threats, of course, is climate change, uh, increasing population, loss of land, all of the things that uh, Nigel mentioned also, and I applaud his efforts. Um, uh, in the Dallas area, of course, uh, like you mentioned, uh, the uh, uh, the 
positive uh, end of that is uh, the positive uh, end of increasing population is that urban agriculture is becoming more popular. I get a lot of calls, there's a lot of interest, there's a lot of new industry uh, going into uh, urban agriculture, things like uh, 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 vertical farms or what they call in Europe, uh, in Asia, plant factory, um, where, um, or hydroponic or aquaponic, uh, I mean, Eden Green, Tazo Farm, um, Profound Farms um, are some three examples that are surrounding the Dallas Metropolitan that uh, are a result of this, uh, of this uh, uh, dilemma that we're facing. We need more food, but uh, we are losing land and uh, find a new approach of uh, growing on the least amount of land um, and uh, even without soil, like in a hydroponic situation. Joe, there's always promotion and encouragement around people growing their own food. So what are you seeing, though, in this regard? And in your experience, what are the major factors that actually get people to becoming home growers? Well, um, like anything, planning and proper planning and proper preparation is important. Um, I get calls all the time from people who are want to start a business, want to start an ag business, or a hobby, want to learn to start to plant their own garden because their dad used to uh, uh, grow a garden and now they have time close to retirement and they want a garden. So proper planning, you know, I always tell them, imagine you want to make cheese and milk and rennet and that will get you cheese, but are you going to make a world-renowned class award-winning cheese the first time? No. Uh, same thing with gardening. Uh, learn, prepare. I, I have a lot of information on Aggie horticulture that I to learn to go there and learn. Uh, the, uh, uh, I also tell them, get to know your county extension agent. Uh, in Texas, almost every county has a, a county agent. Get to know them. Make them their friend. They, you can learn a lot from them. If there's a master gardener program in that county, be involved. Learn from them. Learn from other people's mistakes so you don't have to uh, recreate the wheel. Uh, but most importantly, I tell everybody that your shadow is the key to success. And what does that mean? Meaning you have to be in the garden, your shadow, all the time. This is not a, a one-hour-a-week hobby that you think you're going to grow the best vegetable. You've got to be there all the time, catch the problem early, learn from your mistakes uh, so you don't repeat it again. Um, you know, uh, catch the bugs early, catch the weeds early, catch the disease early and treat it and uh, do something about it. But as you mentioned, when they go and educate themselves, then they know the things to look for and the things to yep. do. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I would say it can be a very profitable hobby in that it can feed your family. Oh, I know people that uh, almost, uh, I mean, except for some uh, bread, meat, and things like that, everything else they is from their own garden. They have stacks and stacks of tomato sauce and pickles and uh, preserved and frozen uh, vegetables. And truly, truly, a great gardener to me is a trifecta. You're a great gardener. You're a great cook because you know how to cook. Uh, what you're harvesting, and you're a great preserver, meaning uh, the freezing, dehydrating, canning. So it's not just to eat now a fresh salad. is how you can eat uh, year long. And feed all your friends and family. That's the good part. And, okay. and it can be done. Joe, we talked a little bit earlier about 
soil health and how it was vital for the crops. Can you tell us a little bit more, though, about why healthy soil is important for a healthy body and the environment? Outside of just the crops, what else does that healthy soil do? Of course, of course. Everything you apply to the soil, uh, the plant can absorb, and then you eat the plant, and that can get into your body. Whether it's a pesticide, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, fungicide, insecticide, things like that. So try to minimize the harmful product that you apply to the soil uh, instead of chemical fertilizer, which are great and they work. Uh, try to go back to the cover crop. Incorporate organic matter, natural organic matter that not only add organic matter, but they add uh, uh, fungi, bacteria, earthworms, all of those that uh, you can know that that soil is rich and healthy. And that soil, because I always say you feed the soil and then the soil feed the plants. So a healthy soil will give you a healthy plant, and then you're eating that, and then whatever you're eating is accumulating in your body. Yeah, so basically our health is a function of that soil condition and what's in that soil. Indirectly, yes. So if there's something really bad and not good in those pesticides and in that soil, then that can come to humans. It can accumulate in your bodies, and of course, it's a controversial issue, and I'm not an expert at it, so mm -hmm. nobody uh, get upset with me, but uh, we know that you spray in the soil, and you, you can find it in the plant. Well, we've had some health experts who have addressed it, and there are studies where they have been able to connect those dots. Really quickly, too, Joe, you've been involved in many variety trials and seed savings. Will you tell us more about this and how and why the types of seeds, why that's important to both environment and to health. Absolutely. Uh, um, the, uh, I'm involved with variety trials, and especially uh, to educate the, uh, the consumer, the clientele, the public, uh, on how to save those seeds. Because um, I, I, I highly uh, encourage everybody, if you save the best tomato, if you save the best potato, if you save the best cucumber, and grow your own seed over the years, basically you are uh, developing the best adapted plant for your climate, for your soil, for your conditions, uh, and it will be the most nutritious and best uh, healthy for you. Thank you. We really appreciate you being with us today, Joe, and we're glad that you're with us here in North Texas out Thanks. at the Texas AgriLife System. We Thanks. look forward to you joining us in our show again in the future. Thank you. thank you very much. Glad to be here. And thank you for listening to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. The conversation starts here, but our goal is for it to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line, so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Thank you for listening, and join us again next week for more on environmental influences and health impacts. Thank you.